Welcome to the Moonlighters, shining a light on topics in internal medicine. With John and Gabby. That was good. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm John, a resident at the Yale Internal Medicine. I'm Gabby, medicine. I'm a resident at Yale in internal medicine. All right, let's jump right in. Okay, uh, welcome to uh, another episode of the Yale Internal Medicine Podcast. Today we have uh, Gabriella Wilson, of course, one of the hosts, and myself, John Houston, and uh, a special guest host today, uh, Dr. Chad Geyer, who's a uh, resident at the Yale Internal Medicine uh, Residency Program, who has a special interest in cardiology uh, for his future. So today we're going to talk about uh, acute coronary syndrome. And I'll have Chad kind of take away the introductions to our guests today. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me, John and Gabby. I really appreciate it. Uh, so to chat with us a little bit today, we have Dr. Joe Brennan. Uh, he is a graduate of the Medical College of Virginia uh, and then came here to Yale to complete his medical residency and chief resident um, and then was a fellow here in cardiology and an advanced fellow uh, for interventional cardiology. Uh, he's been in practice here at Yale New Haven Hospital for over 25 years. Uh, and has developed some clinical expertise uh, in interventional cardiology. Um, in addition to that, he also is an associate professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Um, in addition to that, he is also the director of the Interventional Cardiology Fellowship, the medical director of the cardiac ICU, and the director of the inpatient cardiology services at Yale New Haven Hospital. Are you a director of anything else that we missed? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to unload some things, so that's yeah. quite enough, right? <laughs> All right, awesome. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, I really appreciate you spending the time. I know that you're on service right now, and um, so it's been busy, but thanks a lot, Dr. Brennan, for spending the time to teach us a little bit about acute coronary syndrome. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. All right, so let's get started. So we'll start off with a case like we usually do to try and focus our topic here. So uh, for our case today, we have a patient named Mr. X. Mr. X is a 62-year-old man who has not seen a doctor in 15 years, and he presents to the emergency room with acute onset chest pressure. He was helping his daughter move into a new apartment when he suddenly felt substernal pressure accompanied by some tingling that started in his jaw and radiated down the, his arm to his left hand. He was nauseous, and he had one episode of non-bloody vomiting with some lightheadedness, so his daughter called EMS. So we have the case there. Uh, you know, Dr. Brandon, you happen to be moonlighting in the emergency room, of course, with all your free time, uh, not directing everything that you're directing. Um, and, uh, you know, you're called uh, by the nurse to evaluate this patient um, in the ED. And I just want to know what your first thoughts are when responding to a patient with undifferentiated chest pain. I know a lot of things in this case kind of will point to one thing or another, but um, what is your your approach to general chest pain? John, you have to realize I did used to moonlight quite a bit, uh, <laughs> so, and I was used to working in emergency departments, uh, so it's not all cardiology. And in fact, obviously, we begin to think about what is the most important, how to triage this individual. And we think about, obviously, we'll, I'll get back to it, coronary ischemia, so sort of number one, probably on the differential, but there are a host of other potentially life-threatening abnormalities that it could be. Obviously, this gentleman was doing manual labor. 
He was helping his daughter move some things. It was associated with classic symptoms of myocardial ischemia, but other life-threatening potentials are aortic dissection. He's doing strenuous activity. He's a gentleman that has not seen a physician in multiple years, and obviously I'd be concerned about it in the left arm, and the nausea that he had and vomiting may all be consistent with that also. Haven't really described whether or not he had significant and profound dyspnea, but a pulmonary embolus would be another potentially life-threatening abnormality. And really, atypical chest discomfort, musculoskeletal. Uh, He's been helping his daughter move. Could be also on the differential. GI, because of the nausea and vomiting that he had, typically not associated with the chest discomfort and or the left arm, but a GI disturbance could be it. But Number one, two, and three, as far as life-threatening or myocardial ischemia, aortic dissection, and pulmonary embolus, all of which should be included in our, di- our initial differential. Thanks a lot for that. I mean, I think it's, uh, you highlighted the importance of keeping the differential, um, you know, even if, if the case seems typical for a certain condition. So um, those life-threatening conditions should always be, be considered. Um, uh, so, so you're in the ED, and this patient's in front of you, Dr. Brennan. So what's your course of action? How do you approach the history and physical for a patient presenting with chest pain? And there are there certain times when you would prior, prioritize an ECG over, you know, you know, even a history or physical exam? Sure. So the ECG, truthfully, and you guys, if you've seen it in the emergency department, if someone walks in presenting with chest discomfort, they're taken back without any without much triage whatsoever to obtain an immediate electrocardiogram. The, the eyeball test obviously helps in this instance, uh, and, it, and, it's an, and it's an acquired eyeball test in that someone looks ill. You know it's not just musculoskeletal. You know it's not just GI. The appearance of being ashen, diaphoretic, dyspneic uh, all take precedence, and your history is very focused. It's type of chest discomfort. Describe it in one word if possible. Where does it go? Is it lancinating? Is it boring? Is it sharp? Does it go to the left arm? Does it go to the neck? Does it go to the abdomen? And a very, very, very focused physical exam. Uh, Equality of pulses, heart rate, blood pressure, uh, all of which can be done pretty quickly. uh, And literally almost at the same time that you're taking this very focused history. But the EKG should be happening almost simultaneously. One thing I was wondering is, um, you know, you, you've had so many years of experience seeing um, patients with ACS, you know, um, what, what it, in your experience, how did they describe the pain? You know, uh, one cardiologist told me they never say pain. It's usually a pressure or it's a discomfort. What's your experience, Dr. Brennan? So I was actually going to reiterate that point. Pain is a term that we give somebody. They, if asked to comment on their discomfort, they will ne- routinely not say pain. It's described as an abnormal sensation, something that they haven't had previously, and that there's something not right. Uh, It's rarely described as the worst discomfort in their life. If that is, you should think about something else probably, such as an aortic dissection. And certainly lancinating or tearing should be thought of as an aortic dissection. It is obviously also not typically pleuritic, but it's described as a discomfort that's hard to wrap one single word around. The physical exam, though, is important, too, as, as part of that, John, in that they appear uncomfortable. They, you know, a cold, drenching sweat 
is probably one of the hallmarks of myocardial ischemia, because why would you have a cold, drenching sweat on this individual who's helping his daughter move into an apartment? It should be, a, he'll be maybe sweating, but it's not, he's not going to be feeling cold at that time. Can I ask one quick question that's maybe not related to this patient exactly, but in a patient where you're worried about coronary ischemia like this gentleman, how would the history maybe differ if this was a woman presenting? That's a good question, Gabby. And we all know from a review of the literature and also from experience that women present quite differently. They may have a discomfort, but typically more commonly associated with that is shoulder, neck, arm discomfort, and GI symptoms are, a, are a really a cardinal feature. You have to have a very high index of suspicion. Couple that with a diabetic. Mm-hmm. Um, take a diabetic that may actually have quite atypical or no symptoms other than perhaps being short of breath, feeling fatigued, and you take a diabetic woman. The systems, may, The symptoms may be hard to sort out through that, but you do absolutely have to have a high index of suspicion for women, and we are at fault for missing a number of women presenting with an acute coronary syndrome because of that lack of differentiation. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a great point and, and something um, I think we also see uh, who present with atypical symptoms sometimes is, uh, you know, more elderly patients mm-hmm. as well. Um, actually, uh, John and I are on service with Dr. Borden now, and uh, we recently had someone who kind of a similarly older um, woman who's also diabetic who had very, you know, atypical type symptoms, mostly uh, GI symptoms, who uh, was found to have a ST elevation MI. So always definitely something to keep in mind. So in addition to kind of your initial uh, assessment of the patient, what other labs and other maybe tests such as like a bedside echo would you want to do for this patient? So that that's a good question, Jeff. Do you need anything else? Um, and honestly, if there's time, but if we're talking about an acute coronary syndrome, particularly on the STEMI side of that versus an end STEMI or a demand myocardial infarction and so forth, time is really of the essence. So your, your evaluation should be fairly limited and quick. As I said, a very good focused physical exam and an electrocardiogram should suffice, obviously, for a STEMI. The other modalities, do you need an echocardiogram to help you tell that somebody's having STEMI? No, you do not. You need an echocardiogram if you're looking for other things, i.e. pericarditis with pericardial effusion. Perhaps the suggestion that there's a subtle regional wall motion abnormality that you can't see electrocardiographically with an ST segment elevation MI. Perhaps pulmonary emboli, and you're looking for right ventricular strain and or an aortic dissection where you're looking at the ascending aorta. But time should not be wasted on an echocardiogram, particularly if you see an ST segment elevation MI on ECG. The other testing sort of follows. Do you need it? Do you need a chest X-ray? Do you need lab testing? And obviously, we have the availability to us of point-of-care troponins. A troponin may be negative, may absolutely be negative and normal in the early period of time if someone gets there early enough. So that's not going to sway you one way or the other. What's going to sway you is an individual's presentation and the electrocardiogram, whether or not you need to proceed immediately. Troponins are really helpful, but they can also be unhelpful 
uh, particularly early on. If you suspect an acute coronary syndrome and that is negative, that doesn't tell you that that's not what it is and you need serial troponin measurements. I don't know if you guys are aware, but there's a new troponin assay coming, which is gonna be a high sensitivity troponin assay. And we're not only looking at specific numbers, but we're looking at deltas to those numbers, which is actually gonna compound things a little bit more so. Because uh, individuals for, with left ventricular hypertrophy, hypertension, renal insufficiency, will have abnormal values at baseline, mm -hmm. but we're looking for the delta change in that over a short period of time. So it's even going to get more confusing with laboratory evaluation. You had just mentioned, you know, ST elevation MI, NSTEMI, and maybe unstable angina. I think kind of <clears throat> before we uh, move on, maybe just talk a little bit about what differentiates those things. Yeah, good question, Chad. The uh, ST segment elevation MI used to be called the old transmural Q-wave myocardial infarction, where it would extend from endocardium back to epicardium. Uh, and it's manifested itself as, obviously, the term ST segment elevation on an electrocardiogram. But remember, ACS spans a spectrum. It spans a spectrum from ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. And if I look at the pathophysiology of that, that's in the abrupt total occlusion of a large epicardial coronary artery non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, which used to be called a non-Q-wave myocardial infarction, thought of as a more dynamic process with a, a ruptured plaque that's opening and closing and transiently allowing blood flow. Interestingly, uh, has a worse prognosis, be, potentially because of the fact that you haven't done the deed yet. Mm -hmm. You're not quite completed it. So actually, in, at, at some point, I'm sure this discussion will come up, probably treated just as aggressively as an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, and then runs the range to sudden cardiac death, uh, which is a manifestation of, a, of a, an acute coronary syndrome. And we see this a lot in our coronary intensive care unit, somebody that gets to us via an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as a consequence of typically a non-ST segment elevation MI and or an ST segment elevation MI but all of those are part of that ACS uh, schematic. Um, so kind of getting back to the case here. Um, so we get an ECG on Mr. X uh, that shows ST elevations in leads V2 through V5 with reciprocal depressions in some of the inferior leads, lead three and lead AVF. Kind of talk us through a little bit when you kind of, someone first hands you an ECG, what you're kind of immediately looking for and kind of your, your general approach? Yeah, it's, it's, it's changed a lot, Chad, actually. Uh, it's <laughs> funny you ask that because uh, I was picking on the medical student today, today in our rounds, and obviously, you know, it's, is there a P wave before every QRS? What's the rate? <laughs> What's the rhythm? What are the ST shifts? What are the intervals? I, I have to tell you, my eyes have really now grown to immediately look at the ST segments. Uh, it's probably not the appropriate way to, to fully analyze an electrocardiogram, but that's what we're looking for. We're looking for dynamic electrocardiographic changes. Um, and ST segment elevation is sort of, in the easiest way to think of it, it's sort of the worst of the bunch. It's a large area of myocardium at jeopardy. The other thing that happens is when you evaluate an electrocardiogram, you should be looking at geographic and anatomic localization. As an example, 
you have diffuse ST segment elevation, you're not really, there's not a single coronary artery that's going to correspond to that. That has to be something else, i.e. pericarditis or something along those lines. If you have localization, i.e. elevation 2, 3, and F, then obviously that's an inferior wall myocardial infarction commonly associated with the right coronary infarct. If you have ST segment elevation V1 to V6, perhaps involving 1 and L, that's an anterior lateral myocardial infarction and associated with a proximal LED occlusion. You may just have a proximal LED occlusion or something right after the septals and have an anterior septal uh, infarct. So there's a lot of variability. The reciprocal changes actually help you quite a bit to make sure that it's an acute process. So you may even see individuals following the event that have persistent ST segment elevation but do not have the reciprocal ST segment depression. And most people suggest that the reciprocal depression is from ischemia at a distance and or a very large infarct associated with that. And in this individual, as you described, with SD elevation of V2 to 5, that's really going to sort of be pushing you out a little bit anterior laterally. And commonly, you would also have elevation of 1 and L with mm -hmm. the inferior uh, ST depression. Yeah, thank you for kind of talking us through your approach. I think uh, maybe we should have warned the medical students to plug their ears uh, instead <laughs> of going straight to the ST segment. Um, and I think something that comes up uh, for us residents now is, is you know, in, in what situations would you consider getting uh, additional leads to the 12 lead, such as posterior leads or right-sided leads? So the right-sided leads are to look for right ventricular involvement more so. There are some subtle clues on a routine 12-lead ECG with the leads in the normal position. And that if you have ST segment elevation, greater in lead 3 than you do in 2 and F, it would suggest a right ventricular infarction. The right ventricular infarction is really a clinical, not necessarily an echo, a, uh, an electrocardiographic diagnosis in that it's ha hallmarked by, typically associated with bradycardia, but also hallmarked with hypotension and clear lung fields. There are evanescent, the changes that may be temporary evanescent that can occur in leads V3, V4 to RV3, RV4 when you look at that. But that being said, most people make the diagnosis associated with an inferior wall myocardial infarction. More importantly are posterior EKGs, I believe. Uh, and the reason I say that is that if you, I'm old enough to have been to know the old TIMI trials, the thrombolysis and myocardial infarction trials, where circumflex occlusions were actually excluded from that trial because they presented with anterior lateral ST segment depression, which in reality was posterior ST segment elevation. And so they were excluded, uh, not, not on purpose, but because they didn't meet the EKG criteria. But posterior infarctions may clue you in more to a circumflex occlusion because the circumflex from an electrocardiographic perspective notoriously is a little bit misleading sometimes. You don't see it, sometimes you do. You know, other people I've worked with in the past had, you know, taught me the trick to, if you see these depressions in some of the anterior leads, maybe to, to flip the EKG um, and look at it uh, through, the, through the back of the page and you can see, um, you know, they kind of look more like elevations. I don't know if that's something that you ever do. <laughs> I do, but I probably shouldn't say that. Um, 
And the reason reason being any sort of ST depression will appear as ST elevation. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so really the best way to do it is posteriorly. Mm-hmm. Is there any time where, you know, based on uh, what you see on a e- ECG, maybe you'd be more concerned for things, for instance, in a RCA uh, occlusion, and maybe I think a lot of times we think about patients coming in with more uh, like hypotension or electro- electrical issues. Um, just maybe talk to us a little bit about when you're looking at this and thinking about the territories, uh, potential warding off complications and things like that. Uh, it's a really good question. So I always sort of break this into a couple of things. There, um, as you guys are aware, the, from a coronary anatomy perspective, the most important vessel is the left main coronary. Uh, an abrupt occlusion of the left main will obviously be catastrophic. Um, and more than likely deadly should that occur. You will have with that ST segment elevation and their associated depression in all of the electrocardiographic leads commonly with an emphasis being made on lead AVR. And you guys will see this and that's really supported by some recent literature. So if you see that AVR with associated other changes, there's this subtle suggestion that this may be a left main problem. At left anterior descending artery occlusion, so remember proportionally, the left anterior descending artery supplies more muscle than commonly the other arteries. So you're at risk, subsequent risk, if you do not restore flow quickly enough by leaving that artery occluded of later complications, heart failure, ventricular tachycardia, and so forth, just because of the fact that there's so much myocardium supplied by that vessel. Right coronary infarcts, right ventricular infarcts, are very sick to begin with. Typically bradycardia, perhaps high degree AV block, hypotension. And their hospital course is actually quite complicated early on because of the hypotension bradycardia. Later complications obviously occur later. But the acute complications of VTVF, which is the sudden cardiac death realm of that, really can occur with any coronary occlusion. Mm -hmm. So right coronary, right ventricular infarction, hypotension, bradycardia, perhaps a need for temporary pacemaker, anionotrophic impressor support, versus the left anterior uh, descending artery that commonly will present subsequently as heart failure and or VT. All right. Thank you so much for going over those things to look out for when keeping in mind what territories we're looking at. So we'll get back to our case. Um, Mr. X, we are diagnosing with a STEMI at this time. So you act, you diagnose him with a STEMI and you activate the cath lab. What are the initial things that you want to do immediately for this patient as you're getting ready to bring him to the cath lab? Sure. You want to ensure that you have good IV access. Um, I know this is going to sound stupid. You want to make sure that he's undressed. And you're going to say, why? Because there's time involved Mm -hmm. in that, in the transport. And I can't tell you how many people show up in their clothes. It's actually great. (laughs) But there's time involved. Um, So good IV access. The use of nasal cannula, as you guys know, has been recently hotly debated Mm -hmm. uh, and probably truthfully has no beneficial effect. Um, So you don't necessarily need to wait for the oxygen. You do need pretreatment, obviously, with a number of different medicines. Uh, aspirin hopefully has been administered very early on, and that aspirin hopefully was given as chewable, rapidly absorbed, 
and somebody hasn't given somebody enteric coated aspirin to crunch apart uh, to do that. There are alternative ways to get aspirin in, particularly if somebody comes in uh, as an out-of-hospital arrest with an ST segment elevation, and that would be rectal aspirin. That should be administered. It's rapidly absorbed. And then there's 2B3A inhibitors, obviously, that we'll speak about. Now, it would now be a time, I know door-to-balloon time is very important. We're trying to get the patient to cath. Would we uh, start thinking right now about starting anticoagulation for this patient? And So, Gabby, that's a really good question. So, typically, if there's any delay, we will initiate anticoagulation with heparin. Mm -hmm. If and you sort of have to pick your time of day in a way. If somebody rolls in, it's the middle of the day, there's a cath lab available, there is zero delay in mm -hmm. that. And there's really no need to give upfront heparin because we're going to give it as part of the procedure. So the common anticoagulant is intravenous unfractionated heparin. If there is a delay, cath lab is occupied, the team has to come in, it's four in the morning, uh, then we will ask the emergency department to give intravenous heparin and take the slight risk of increased bleeding risk with arterial puncture upstream. So depending on how fast we can be, mm -hmm. that's how we would decide on that. What's the uh, quickest uh, door balloon that you've ever had, Dr. Brown? <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Ten minutes. No really? way. And here's why that happened. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a, I was doing a cath at an outside hospital and identified a nasty, hazy lesion in somebody's left anterior descending artery. And I was at a hospital that did not perform primary angioplasty unless you had a STEMI. I went out to make a phone call to transfer the patient here, and his STs went up. So he was on the table with a catheter in. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so it couldn't have been quicker. Wow. Um, 10 minutes. Oh, yeah, I wonder gosh. if that's the record. Yeah. No, I'm sure it's not. <laughs> but it was, it was really quick, yeah. But uh, you never get that lucky. <laughs> All right, so uh, so now we're back to Mr. X. He's brought to the cath lab. Uh, you you know do angiography, and it reveals a near 100% uh, occlusion of the mid LED. Um, you uh, successfully open the vessel. You deploy two drug eluting stents, and then he's admitted to the cardiac ICU for post PCI monitoring. So I think this is maybe even the most important question for our, the listeners is that um, what is the most important things residents uh, in the cardiac ICU should be looking for in a patient um, post-PCI or post-STEMI? So reperfusion arrhythmias can absolutely occur. So depending, it branches off into a, a couple of different questions, John, uh, a couple of different answers. Uh, so the individual has already gotten aspirin has probably received something we didn't mention, a uh, P2Y12 inhibitor, which becomes very important. So they're, and cardiologists, we love to poison platelets. Uh, <laughs> so there is a risk with any procedure that we perform of bleeding. So arterial access is an issue. And we know that radial access has a lower bleeding risk. Everybody in this room is aware that bleeding and its subsequent need for transfusion is associated with a poorer short-term and particularly long-term outcome for any individual in the, in the hospital. So we know that if we've gone radio, our chance of bleeding is less. We go femoral, particularly with all the anticoagulants that we've used, the aspirin, the P2Y12 inhibitor, perhaps a 2B3A inhibitor, and certainly intravenous unfractionated heparin, their bleeding risk is high. So the house staff have to be aware of bleeding complications. Reperfusion 
you open an artery, and obviously reperfusion will occur. And it used to be sort of the pat on the back if you saw VTVF in the cath lab immediately after reperfusion because you know you'd done the right thing, and that had occurred at a place that he or she could be promptly resuscitated. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's the best place for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Other arrhythmias occur, too post-reperfusion. And really the reason coronary intensive care units and intensive care units have had an effect on mortality have to do with the, with the recognition and treatment of arrhythmias. You open up a right coronary artery, as we've spoken about, you may have profound bradycardia. That may occur up in the CCU also subsequently. You open up an LED or a right, you may have VTVF, and that may be a little bit delayed but you can also have a relatively benign rhythm, accelerated idioventricular rhythm, which is an automatic rhythm suggesting reperfusion. And the simple way to think of that is that slow ventricular tachycardia. The mechanical complications that are associated with uh, treatment of, not treatment, but delay in treatment of myocardial infarctions do not occur immediately. They are delayed. So the big things that we think of are bleeding complications, associated with the procedure, and dysrhythmias that are all part of that. Heart failure is pretty unusual to be associated in the early hours of a myocardial infarction. And you guys, speak, looking back on your experience, probably can't think of somebody that's had heart failure as part of their presentation of a myocardial infarction. So that's unusual. Yeah, I think the things that we, you know, residents probably always say is that the STEMIs are sometimes the most non-sick patients in the CCU, you know, because we just kind of fix them they're kind of they come up and we're talking to them and they're like yeah I just had a, a heart attack and and uh, usually you know usually it's uncomplicated you know so but just as you emphasize we do have to watch out for a few a few things and uh, make sure we examine access site specifically and obviously monitor tele uh, telemetry so kind of getting back to our case here um, it's hospital day three now so fast forward a few days uh, you're starting to plan for mr. X's discharge Labs show a hemoglobin A1C is 7.9 and an elevated LDL to 170. Um, he, we did get an echo post-PCI that showed he now has an ejection fraction of what's estimated to be 20%. Um, so thinking about um, those labs and things, what, what kind of medications would you want to send um, Mr. X out on? And then I think specifically talking about um, you know dual antiplatelet therapy and duration. Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. X is going to go home on a lot of medicines that he didn't come <laughs> in on. Um, there, if you just take anybody but Mr. X, uh, those individuals typically will leave the hospital on five medications. They will leave on an on aspirin. They will leave on another antiplatelet agent, clopidogrel, ticagrelor, or, or prasigrel. They will leave on typically high-intensity statin. They will leave on a beta blocker, and they will leave on an ACE inhibitor. So five right off the bat. Mr. X obviously has a number of other different issues, particularly the newly diagnosed diabetes. And he will need, obviously, aggressive diabetic control, be that oral hypoglycemics and or even insulin. He will leave on that. The, the LDL cholesterol is hopefully something that we obtained as he rolled in the door or shortly thereafter. And the reason being it becomes invalid. After, it's an acute phase reactant and drops precipitously 
uh, during hospitalization, it wouldn't matter what the value is. We know mm -hmm. we're going to treat him with yeah. high-intensity statin anyway. But to get an accurate value, it has mm -hmm. to be obtained almost immediately. And, in fact, there's some data that actually we should initiate high-dose statins in the emergency department with the aspirin, the P2Y12 inhibitor, as well as the uh, statin to that. Mm -hmm. The choice of P2Y12 has to do with a lot of things. There's suggestion that Ticagalor Brillanta, being the trade name of that, is actually a better drug currently. We know we use it up front. It works quickly versus Clopidogrel, which has a four to six hour delay since it's a prodrug with kicking in. Ticagalor and Prasagol work very quickly, and that's why we use it. But there's also good data that suggests it's more beneficial to it. All you have to do is watch the television ads uh, and, <laughs> and get that. From an ACS perspective, dual antiplatelet therapy is still recommended for 12-month period of time. For an elective stent placement, we may get by with three to six months based on newer data and newer stents. But it's not just the stenting that buys you the, the 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy. It's the presentation with an acute coronary syndrome. Mm -hmm. And either that can be the end STEMI, the STEMI, and or the sudden cardiac death mm -hmm. all fall under that. And 12 months is still recommended. ACE inhibitors are obviously very important if somebody's blood pressure allows, and particularly in a gentleman that's diabetic. He should absolutely be on an ACE inhibitor as long as his renal function is acceptable to do that, and he doesn't have a propensity towards hyperkalemia. And the mistake that we make is actually we don't send them home on enough. Uh, all of the trials, the old trials looking at that, would suggest that we should carry something to the maximum dose of those meds. So we're talk we used to talk captopril doses of up to 200 milligrams and so forth. We never oh, get there. No. We say, oh, Mr. X is going home on lisinopril of five, because that's <laughs> all we've bothered to do. Beta blockers are the same, you know, and the, and the beauty of beta blockers is that the reason they work is probably early on to prevent dysrhythmias and prevent sudden cardiac death. Ultimately, it may help, particularly if they have the, uh, the ejection fraction that Chad has mentioned down in the mid-20s. Uh, but really, early on, it's a rhythm of prevention and suppression to do that. So he needs a lot of help. He needs aspirin. He needs P2Y12 inhibitor, high-intensity statin, ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, and glycemic control. And uh, unfortunately, we are shortly going to take the in-training exam. So just to um, maybe something to clarify, which I think comes up, uh, you did mention the, the length of the dual antiplatelet mm -hmm. treatment in ACS and then kind of contrast that with, um, like you were mentioning, the elective procedures. Yeah, the duration, 12 months off the bat with ACS. Uh, most people would do six months, though there's some suggestion with the newer stents, elective stenting, maybe three months of dual antiplatelet therapy. Perfect. And aspirin for life, obviously. Yeah, we like aspirin for everyone. Start sprinkling that, you know, along in the water as well. <laughs> um, given the fact that his ejection fraction is now... Um, low, 20% or so. Um, what, uh, what do you think about sending him home with like a life vest? I know the, the, the trial, the vest trial recently kind of came out that didn't show 
uh, mortality benefit for sudden cardiac death. But I think that, you know, in some patients, we still, you know, send them home with these vests. Just um, have you comment on that maybe? Yeah, so I am not sure what to make of that data. I'll be honest with you. Um, we have we have been very vigorous in promoting discharge with a vest in place for those individuals that have had a significant myocardial infarction and marked reduction of left ventricular systolic function. Because the data for such suggests that over the first 30 days, their risk is quite large for sudden death, higher than we previously thought. One of our fellows, Angela Higgins, had actually done a wonderful grand rounds on sudden cardiac death post-MI, and it pointed out a timeline that to a lot of us was quite surprising as regards the frequency of sudden cardiac death post-MI after they've left the hospital. Practically, if you ask someone to wear a life vest for 30 or 40 days, and I can get back to that 40-day statement, if you ask someone to wear a life vest, it's hard to do. They have to remove it only for showering. Most individuals don't wear, like wearing this rather bulky thing around. And mo my personal experience is that most do not complete the time period where they should be wearing it, just because it's uncomfortable to them. I do think it's a good idea, and I think that the high-risk features that we could identify prior to hospital discharge are those that continue to have ambient ventricular ectopy post-myocardial infarction. The reason the 40-day mention comes in is there are criteria, there are guidelines, and CMS sort of makes us do this, and then we have to wait 40 days following the revascularization procedure and with appropriate medical therapy to see whether or not somebody's ejection fraction improves, and therefore they do not require a, an implantable cardiac mm -hmm. defibrillator at that time. So if in a way, you're, waiting, you're going to wait 40 days with a repeat echo, et cetera, et cetera, to decide whether or not somebody needs a defibrillator. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brennan, for talking to us about your thoughts on the VEST trial and also sharing your expertise on how to manage these patients after a STEMI. Um, I'll just wrap up our case with Mr. X and let you guys know what happens. So we discharge Mr. X on all the appropriate medications. We arrange for cardiac rehab and also close follow-up for him for his new diagnosis of diabetes to make sure that's managed well. Four weeks later, you see him in clinic, and he is feeling much better, and he thanks you for saving his life. That's always nice, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's always nice, huh? We um, like happy endings on our Cardiac podcast. rehab is important. So just so you know, cardiac rehab actually is, is something – that we need to think about at the time of discharge. It's important from both a social, psychologic perspective, um, and also it allows us to follow them in a monitored, supervised program. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of cardiac rehab. As everybody is aware, there's post-MI depression, uh, and there are post-MI depression scales that they now do at rehab. It is incredibly important to get somebody involved in rehab. The problem that I've had is some of the younger patients think they're above that mm -hmm. uh, and think they can do more, which is probably true, than some of the 80-year-olds that they're sitting next to on the stationary bicycle. But it is extraordinarily important to get somebody involved in that.
All right. Well, uh, that kind of wraps up our episode on ACS. I just want um, to say thanks, uh, Dr. Brennan, for, for spending the time with us here today to, to educate us on the ACS. I also want to say thanks to uh, Chad Geyer for uh, kind of leading this episode and, and coming up with the case. And, uh, you know, we hope to have you on again for another topic if, you ha- if you'll have us. To talk about a GI topic, I presume, right? <laughs> <laughs>